0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're here with you after, if you're listening in real time, a big, big night. Uh, in Washington, of course, the president gave his State of the Union speech. And here in Atlanta, Stacey Abrams gave the Democratic response. We're going to get into that and a lot more on the show today. By the way, I, I'm i looking at the Facebook Live feed. You know, you can watch us on Facebook Live. Just go to the GPB news page and you'll find it there. And at least on my screen, the message it's up says, This live video should start soon with an emphasis on should because I think many of you out there know that off and on we've been uh, having some problems here and there with Facebook Live. And I wanted to mention it today because Tom Faust, Robert Jimison, our technicians have been working hard to try to get Facebook Live up and running consistently because you've been such a great audience for us. Oh, Tom Faust just told me the problem is in my computer. Sure, I've heard that before. Greg (laughs) Bluestein is here today, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's in the paper just about every day and also files for the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Hi, Greg. How's it going? Good. Were you up late last night?
2: I was. I was. I I, I covered the speech, and then we also have to cover a sort of analysis that we wrote after that. And I went to bed around, two.
1: Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. All right, uh, across uh, from you in the studio, Patricia Murphy. She is a columnist for Roll Call and the Daily Beast. And you have some big news that you just were able to tell us about.
3: Oh, thank you. Well, my column for Roll Call has now been is now syndicated across the country, so in crinkled newspapers <laughs> near you. Crinkled. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's very exciting news. Thank you. News. I'm
3: excited. Congratulations.
1: And, of course, Patricia brings uh, to that job a wealth of experience on Capitol Hill, working with um, senators from Georgia. And you always point out that there was, uh, aside from Sam Nunn and Max Cleveland, there was a senator from another state you worked
3: with. Richard Ryan from Nevada. Two, okay. terms, two okay. terms. Two terms. Two yeah. terms. <laughs> All right.
1: Michael Owens is with us today as well. He is the chairman of the Cobb County Democratic party, and we're going to talk with you specifically in a little while. You were at the Abrams uh, speech last night.
4: That I was, um, as electric and as
1: historic as it was. All Glad right. to be there. At, when we get to the Abrams portion of all this, I, I, you should take a couple minutes and tell us what it was like in the room, how it felt, um, and we'll get to that as we move forward on the show. Tamara Hallerman just let us know, uh, Greg, that uh, she has gotten an assignment that's tied her up for the rest of the hour today. You heard us mention her at the in the headlines of the show, but uh, tomorrow's not going to be able to join us. But we'll we'll soldier on.
2: A spot of breaking news that hopefully you'll be able to read about later on. Yeah, agency.com. we're going to
1: keep track of the political insider to see if what she's working on in fact comes to his happens while we're on the air, but we are forbidden from talking about it. Locked. <laughs> Greg Bluestein. Um, we're going to play some of the speech from both the president and from Stacey Abrams as a starting point. Give us – I'm going to go around and start with you, Greg. What about the president's speech last night? How do you summarize what he, you thought about what he said?
2: Well, it was uh, an air of bipartisan unity, but we've heard that before um, and haven't really you know, seen the, uh, some of the benefits of, of bipartisanship. It was also a, a hard line on immigration. Um, uh, a, a renewed call for some sort of border wall. Um, and it was interesting to me was really no mention of the shutdown that, that just polarized and divided the Capitol over the last 35 days and, and led to more threats of another shutdown in just a few more weeks.
1: Patricia, you're a veteran of the, these things on Capitol Hill. How did what you saw last night compare to past speeches by presidents?
2: Uh, well, uh,
3: to other presidents, a lot of um, areas where he went uh, decided to go less with less convention, I would say. Typically, it is a an extremely polite conversation. Um, it is a unifying call throughout, uh, from beginning to end. And I would say this was a unity speech sandwiched around a promise to hunt you down and make you pay for it if you come after him. It was – there was just a – he was much more aggressive than I expected him to be. And in the House chamber that you've been invited to, um, that's typically not the the, uh, the decorum that you expect from a president. So to me, it was a little unusual in, in how aggressive he was towards yeah, Democrats.
1: It, you know, Michael, I, what, one of the things I think that you as a Democrat might appreciate about the speech last night is it seemed pretty clear that the president rolled out – The themes of his 2020 campaign
4: to a large extent, didn't he? He did to a large extent. And I I think, uh, you know, first of all, to Patricia's point, I think he needs to understand and realize that he was invited guest into the into the uh, chambers last night. And, you know, this whole idea of being bipartisan, I think that lasted, I don't know how long did it last, a couple of seconds, I guess. Um, but, you know, that, that key on when he talked about, you know, that, that there, there basically is no peace without you know, with the partisan investigations going on. I mean, that that to me was almost like an overt challenge. Um, and, and, and partially, I, I mean, I was a flabbergasted. Let's
1: let's let's listen to that uh, portion of the president's speech.
5: An economic miracle is taking place in the United States, and the only thing that can stop it are foolish wars, politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. So I have to be honest. As I
1: listened to that portion of the speech, Greg, I didn't re—I didn't connect it as a threat. But clearly, that's what people have taken away overnight. I, I just assumed that he was using rhetoric uh, to say one was going to be out outshine the other. I just didn't hear it that way. But apparently. Everybody realizes that's what he was doing, threatening.
2: A lot of people did because, remember, the, the days leading up to this was all about how it's going to be a more conciliatory tone. It's going to be a lot more about bipartisanship and unity. And when um, when he toggled between those two, concili- conciliatory and, uh, and confrontation, um, it, it struck a lot of people um, the wrong way.
3: Also, I think uh, the biggest tell uh, was just watching Nancy Pelosi's face in that exact (laughs) moment. And she had been pretty much poker-faced and pleasant and, hi, how are you? And then when he said, uh, you know, pointless, partisan investigations, she she literally—she (laughs) said— (laughs) <laughs> you know, just the eye roll and that eye, that's that been like the eye roll that's been seen around the world now. That was the Democrats indication that you have got to be kidding me. They he's saying you don't have the right to conduct these investigations and they believe it's their duty to do that. So that's where we are right now.
4: Yeah, I think, um, you know, that is that is the, the duty of Congress as duty that they have that is laid out to investigate when they think there are things to investigate. I mean, it's really that simple. And them basically saying there will be no peace. No, this is the President of the United States, basically. And so I don't know how you don't take that as some kind of thinly veiled threat. Um, you know if there's nothing been done wrong you let the investigation do its run its course and you go on about the, the duties that you've been elected to do and that's where I found a serious problem with it
1: I was just a little surprised that he raised the question of investigations at all in the speech sure. I don't think there's any advantage to his doing that if he really is sending a threat he could have there are other channels he could have used to do that and yet he chose to showcase it
2: and it led Democrats to double down and you heard Nancy Pelosi say after the the speech that she will not be cowed even though she sees this as an all-out threat that, that the house will not be intimidated and will not relent its investigation
1: let, let me play another clip because i said earlier and i want to get you all involved in uh, your thoughts on the campaign elements of this uh to me patricia i want to play a soundbite that i think gives us a real clue about a major theme the president plans on rolling out in 2020 and it, like like the birther uh, question and other uh, things. The president has seized the wall, for example. I think we're gonna hear this over and over and over again.
5: We stand with the Venezuelan people in their noble quest for freedom, and we condemn the brutality of the Maduro regime whose socialist policies have turned that nation from being the wealthiest in South America into a state of abject poverty and despair. Here in the United States, we are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free, and we will stay free.
1: Some of the young Democrats have given uh, the President an opening to talk about socialism. we're going to hear that all the way through uh, next November.
3: Yes, and I gotta say that's good politics yeah. right there for Donald
1: Trump. <laughs> I mean,
3: the specter of socialism has always been held over liberals uh, heads as you you you're not really capitalist. you're not you're not for democracy, you're, you're for socialism. And for the very first time, there are now two people in Congress, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio. Cortez who embraced socialism. And rather than defining, um, especially Ocasio-Cortez, rather than defining what that means specifically to her, she tends to say what well, it's not. She's like, well, it's not, it's not, I'm not into any isms. It's not capital S, it's little s. And he's coming out here and saying what all moderates fear on the left and the right, are we going too far to the left with the direction that this Democratic Party is going in? And so you had six, at least six <laughs> Democratic presidential hopefuls who want to take on the president in 2020 sitting there in the room. And a number of them have come out with policies that are much further to the left than most Democrats have advocated for. So if that's the direction he's going in for 2020, I do think it's very smart.
1: Well, there's a there's a direct correlation to Georgia politics here, Greg. This was something that the uh, Republican Party threw at uh, Stacey Abrams Relentless during her constantly every right.
2: mailer, most TV ads were socialist Stacey Abrams, and of course she would answer that you know she's she's moving the party to the left, but not nearly to the left of uh, to encapsulate socialist policies. But it was an effective argument that Republicans were able to make, and one that, that they're surely already starting to make against her in 2020 if she does run against David Perdue. But Trump made it here in Georgia too. I mean, he, this was one of his favorite lines on the campaign trail. But he did his uh, doing his trip to Macon, he said that. Stacey Abrams wants to turn Georgia into Venezuela, Um, and it got one of the loudest applauses of his entire speech.
1: Yeah, I thought that it was uh, good speech writing to make the transition from the turmoil that is unfolding in Venezuela right now because of a socialist regime uh, and to turn the corner and bring it home to what Trump says the the Democrats are uh, increasingly practicing here, socialistic policies.
2: Yeah, and you can tell too. It's it's a, just just like Patricia talked about. It's a nerve Democratic leaders because they're worried that that the Bernie Sanders of the party, who's not officially with the party but representing the party, um, can can help Republicans paint them with such a broad stroke.
1: Michael, how do the Democrats
4: uh, fight back on that score? Democrats fight back by by simply sticking to what our core principles are and what 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 our values are laying ar- around that. So. And, there's so much here to try to unpack. I'm trying to decide what, what actually to bring out on, on this question. Um, it's as simple as this, and, and it does, right? It does tie back here to Georgia when um, Leader Abrams was, you know, decried as, as this extremist radical that was too too extreme for Georgia, Right. And, you know, I think what we have to do is focus on our messaging, because if we're talking about, you know, affordable health care for all and health care being a right. if We're talking about, you know, having a livable wage. If we're talking about making sure that our children are educated and ready to compete in a global society, you know, if if those things are are radical, then I I don't I don't know where else we need to be, because it is troubling to me that, you know, common sense policy that overwhelmingly Georgians and most Americans believe in. Uh, I think the Republicans are on a losing side of trying to message that and, and Take that into a socialist realm or to some radical realm when really it's in line where I think most of us want to be.
1: Okay, so first of all, Patricia, it strikes me and and I include myself in this. At some point uh, in the months ahead, uh, I think it's going to be important to unpack exactly what being a socialist really means, not some vague notion of it as a threat that hangs over democratic society, because there are some socialist societies which are also democratic. So we're going to watch how that plays out. But I have I have to tell you, Patricia, you're the journalist – you're one of the journalists at the table today. The way Michael just answered that question uh, doesn't, it seems to me, as smart as he is, really specifically f- help us understand how, what the democratic message – fighting against this notion that they're socialists. In, in some ways, it's like when I hear Nancy Pelosi say the problem with the wall is it's immoral. It's not good messaging, and I'm not – Michael may come up with great messaging, but I'm not sure we're hearing where the Democrats are headed based on what he just said.
3: Well, as- I thought Michael answered that question very well just now. For, <laughs> for,
1: you, think, you think that, that voters will well, understand?
3: you know, affordable health care, we want to be able to go to college without being in debt for the rest of your lives. The American economy can't handle huge swaths of debt being gobbled up by banks, and therefore people can't buy their first home, their first car. They can't take care of their children. They can't feed their families. You know, I think there is an economic message that Democrats have been really successful with. It just be- it becomes very dicey when you start defining de- defining what is socialism, what right. isn't socialism. Right. You should be like, we're not socialists. You that, know, no, no one here is socialist. Uh, it- Michael,
1: because I was a little bit skeptical of your
4: answer, I want to <laughs> give you a chance to respond. <laughs> you know, I
3: I, I I will
4: double down on what I said because ultimately I think that's what gets us through. Now, the the messaging around that is is. Re- look, Republicans are going to take this and run with it every single time. Um, But Democrats ranking file and, you know, I've I've got to be careful here because there are Democratic socialists and and organizations are out there that that do a lot of good work. And and we have to separate when we're talking about, you know, what some folks may think of of Stalin and and Marx and, and really bring this down to. The democratic socialists of today yep. um, are democratic socialists. Right. All right? E- now
3: e- I'm going to say I don't like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> when you're talking right. about socialism, you have lost the conversation. All right. That's what awesome. we, that we
4: don't talk about. There's no right. reason to talk about that. Republicans can try that mantra, but if we go back and we stick back to our basic principles. We don't have to go there. There's no yes. reason to go there. That's, I, that's I, the think point you I'm make a, Yes.
1: Thank you, and I also appreciate your being your being willing to, ask, uh, to let me ask <laughs> you to try again
4: <laughs>
2: right. also the, the underlying <laughs> policy issues that, that republicans are to use to paint those democratic uh, candidates as socialist really in, uh, revolve around medicare for all yeah and yeah. um the majority of presidential candidates ma- major ones at least who are in the race are supportive of it and the house leadership and senate leadership are for now treading cautiously on it. but it's going to be up to the public to decide, too. And polls so far show, if not a majority, uh, you know, a, blo- a broad pl- pl- plurality of voters' well, support policies. good.
1: Like I'm that. glad you mentioned that, because, Michael, That's exa- here's another issue we bring b- right back home to Georgia. Uh, Democrats will undoubtedly in 2020 run on uh, finally getting, unless something happens, unless uh, Governor Kemp addresses it in a substantive way, uh, Democrats have been arguing for expanding Medicaid in Georgia for ever since ACA was passed. And it strikes me that's going to be a Democratic message in 2020 as well. Again, unless Governor Kemp preempts it with some
4: broad proposal, which doesn't seem likely. Right. I, and I think it, it will be and I think it it should be. Um you know, I think I've seen numbers upwards of 70 percent of Georgians, right, are in support 72 of and 72 Seventy-two. Right. I mean, so when you start to look at numbers like that, um, it's not going to be long before Republicans look at it. And, you know, Governor Kemp may kind of kind of preempt this and get ahead of it with something because it's no different than kind of on the national level, right, when well, Republicans time after time after time again voted to repeal ACA and then things like the. Um, pre-existing conditions, until the overwhelming number of, of Americans felt that pre-existing conditions is something we should protect, Greg, do then you all know, Republicans want to support I that. apologize. Greg, do you know something about
1: There's this?
2: There's real movement on, among the Republicans in the Georgia State House on that issue right now. We wrote a, a front-page story, on I think it was last Friday's paper, about the, the, the push, especially in the Republican Senate caucus, towards making sure that waivers don't just give the state more flexibility to use Medicaid dollars like Brian Kemp has outlined, but that actually are used to expand. Expand Medicaid uh, with a Georgia sort of way, like uh, based on Indiana's model, in a conservative fashion, but actually expand Medicaid. I think what we're hearing from Republican leaders is they want to take that issue off the table for Democrats in 2020. Well, that
1: makes sense, but you still have a speaker in the house saying we don't believe in expanding Medicaid. It'll end up costing the state too much money when the feds finally can no longer sustain it. If I suppose, if you don't call it Medicaid expansion, if you call it waivers, you might be able to move the ball down the field. And
2: look, several States have used waivers um, to expand Medicaid, including Indiana to hundreds of thousands of people. And you, What you're hearing is Republican leaders saying the same, but you're right. That doesn't discount the fact that Republican leaders, including Governor Kemp, Speaker Ralston, for years have said any sort of expansion is too much. So crossing that bridge will be a big political lift.
3: I was just going to say, I think um, you see all kinds of public support for these programs and expansion of these programs until you add a second poll question, would you be willing to pay higher taxes for this? And so I think it's crucial for Democrats to remember as they're sort of coming out with these big, bold, pricey proposals that they have the House majority because of moderate voters, not because of liberal voters or because of democratic socialists who will always be with the party. It's these moderates who they've been able to win over in the suburban districts that are the majority makers and so to swing super hard to the left during the primary is going to leave you not a lot of room to get back to the middle if, once you really need to get those voters.
1: Michael respond to that as a Cobb County Democratic Party chair. That's your sure. she's talking
4: Patricia's talking about the voters in your our county, yeah, and and that's respectively where I think I disagree now because <laughs> the the voters, and particularly if I can talk about voters I have in Cobb, and who may seem more moderate, um, they're they're the exact ones who are pushing for these bolder ideas and these larger swaths of 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 progressive principles, if you will, to bring in. I mean, there's a dollar amount attached to it, yes, but when you start asking, will Will you, ta- you know, if tax dollars are, are have to be allocated, will you? The overwhelming answer is yes. And that is because, you know, we know that affordable health care is something we have to have. Um, we know that we have to get out there and support areas, not only where we're affected, because this this is not a major issue in Cobb and may not may not be in most issues in metro Atlanta. But that doesn't mean we can't see outside of that into rural Georgia and understand how that's affecting and impacting Georgia. And so, no, I, I, I totally agree or believe that, you know, Democrats that may be more moderate, maybe even over to independents, uh, while it may not be affecting them directly, they still under- understand the overall effect it has this state. And it's worth making the investment in. I,
1: I want to play one more soundbite from the president before we take our break, uh, because I- this will give us a transition to Stacey Abrams' speech. Uh, the president, of course, last night began by— uh, uh, saying that he wants to bring people together, he wants to work across party lines. The the word we heard from the White House for a couple of days leading up to the speech was he's going to talk about comedy with a T, not comedy like ha-ha. And, uh, and then the speech started with a little of that, and then he got to immigration.
5: No issue better illustrates the divide between America's working class and America's political class than illegal immigration. Wealthy politicians and donors push for open borders while living their lives behind walls and gates and guards.
1: Um, that was just a tiny bit of it, but he went on and used some of the rhetoric he's been using uh, when he was out doing rallies. Uh, Patricia uh, talking about uh, women who are young girls who are being rounded up as sex slaves. Um, he brought all that to the to this to the podium last night uh, and um, got pretty good response from Republicans, but the way he continues that conversation about immigration is going to do nothing to bring the parties together. <laughs>
3: Well, you know, immigration and particularly demonizing immigrants is one of the four major food groups for this president. <laughs> he basically lives off of it and he has won on it, I would say, in a lot of cases. Um, however, he is in a very new world. There is a new sheriff in town. He's got to get a deal with Nancy Pelosi by Friday in order to to avoid another government shutdown. It has, has everything to do with immigration, the wall. What do you call it? What does it look like? Um are immigrants welcome in this country or are they to be feared you know this to for him to lay that case out and just the days before he needs to come to an agreement with Democrats and he can't get it without them is, um, I think, was a, s- a major signal to Democrats. And he even – when he was talking about politicians living, li- living behind walls, yeah. he was talking about Nancy Pelosi, who does have a gate in front of her house, and Barack Obama, who has a very tiny sort of, um, sort of footstool <laughs> yes, in front of his, his house. In his Washington but, home? Yes. Yeah, those were just direct personal attacks on the people he needs to be working so, with. So, Greg, let
1: me go back to rhetoric again because – Because the president is is a master at understanding what words stick and what words don't. Uh, He's the one who has been so effective in using the term open borders. Democrats want open borders. Over and over and over again, the Republican Party, Republican members of Congress have all picked up that language. And here again, it strikes me that Democrats have to come up with a with as effective a response in terms of a few words to say well of course we don't support open borders they do say that but they were kind of late getting there it seemed to me
2: and, and you're hearing that a little bit with the border security not border wall language we're, we're starting to starting to emerge even more but that's going to be the challenge throughout 2020 cycle because um, so much of the of the debate uh, especially on the federal level will be around how to bolster that border security.
1: Yeah, Michael, I think one of the smartest responses I've been hearing is the notion that we do support, we support, uh, oh, now I'm blocking what the language is, not an electronic fence. Smart, smart fence. Smart fence. Smart, smart fence. Wall yeah, or smart smart wall. fence. That seems to me to be a great rhetorical response.
4: Yeah. And I, I think I was early on, on record here on Political Rewind, saying that you know I we need comprehensive border security, is, is what I've called it, right? A way that addresses... Um, you know, all the technology, all the manpower, all the resources we have together, if the solution is really about, you know, safeguarding our country and really about protecting our borders. Anything else you get beyond that is really rhetoric, because if you're simply focusing on the southern border, which had its ups and downs, and by the way, you know, hundreds of thousands of people walk back and forth across this border every single day. So, you know, if you want to try to start tying that to some fabricated numbers about crime and where a wall is versus it's not, I don't think that's really the answer to have. I'm with you if you want to talk about comprehensive border security that talks about our ports of entry, that talks about our northern borders, that talks about every way that there's crime or illicit activity happening. If you simply want to focus on people you know, going through some hole in the wall with a backpack that might have a little marijuana in it, that's not where the focus is coming from, and that's not what's going to keep us safe in this country.
1: Michael, you just provided us... The Political Rewind team with a great opportunity to throw to a break because one of the things the president talked about last night was crime ridden El Paso, Texas, how it used to have extraordinary levels of crime since the wall went up at El Paso. Crime has dropped to new lows. The sheriff of the county uh, had a very angry response to the president saying we've always been a peaceful town. Um, we're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to hear what Stacey Abrams had to say. But as we go to break, I thought this was a good time to listen to Marty Robbins sing perhaps his most famous song, El Paso. <laughs> and
5: evil while a spell. My love was deep for this Mexican maiden I was in love but in vain I could tell One night a while... Now is the perfect time to
4: clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877 GPB1CAR or donate securely
5: online at gpb.org/cars and thanks. I'm Together we will defeat AIDS in America and beyond. President Trump says he wants to stop the spread of HIV in the next
3: decade. Advocates say that's doable,
2: but... We need to be
4: watchful on the administration to make sure that they're not doing anything that's cross-purposes at reaching the goals
3: of this initiative. Cautious optimism on efforts to curb HIV. This afternoon on All
2: Things Considered from NPR News.
1: 4 till 7 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, Michael Owens, and uh, Greg Bluestein are with us. Uh, Stacey Abrams got her moment to talk to a national audience last night. Michael, she was down at the IBEW Hall in downtown Atlanta. About 50 people, maybe standing behind her, but you were there. You were not as, in that group behind her. Tell us a little bit about what it was like down there last
4: night. Yeah, it was it was completely electric. Yeah, I, I, I was not, for the record, one of the people behind her. Um, I was I was kind of directly to the side, so um, literally watching the teleprompter as she was speaking. So it was really cool. But the the electricity that was in the room, um, you know, it was, a, it was a relatively small gathering of probably some of her most uh, ardent supporters. Uh, it was at the IBW building, one of the early supporters of um, of Leader Abrams. So it was, a, it was a really it was an intimate event. But at the same time, we knew we could feel it in the air that she was about to go on TV in front of 50 million people and, and tell a story that, quite frankly, some of us has heard a, a time or two. But um, but we knew that it was going to to truly launch this woman into uh, into the stratosphere. And, and
1: I'm, I read in the paper. It may have been your own story, Greg, that Abrams didn't watch the president's speech. What was her demeanor? What what was she t- walking around talking to people yeah. beforehand? Was no. she
4: in a corner meditating? How do you <laughs> So so the truth is, none of us actually saw saw the speech yeah. um, directly and live. Uh, we were we were already in the room. And uh, we were we were extremely cold. It was nice and brisk and brisk <laughs> in there. I think to keep everyone awake. But uh, but it was it was just a lot of anticipation. And um, you know it, we kind of got everything sorted out where everyone was going to be, cameras, camera angles, and everything. And then there was just kind of updates about what was going on in the speech and where they were at uh, in there. And uh, we were kind of given an update that that Leader Abrams was going to come in and. You know, she wasn't out talking to folks and everything. She came in, and it was it was just explosive, right? So the, people the cheered when she Yeah, in. just people just totally cheered. And I mean, it was it was all business. She was her normal self. If you've seen Stacey Abrams in in action, um, you know she has this this calm um, projection of confidence about her. And basically, she went straight to the podium. Took a couple of minutes to kind of gather herself and then went out there and just gave a, a flawless speech. So what do we think about uh, the speech
1: that uh, Stacey Abrams gave? I'll, I'll say one thing. Chris Wallace on Fox News last night when she was finished. Uh, said he thought it was a terrific speech the fox news team thought she did a really great job <laughs> that's interesting and that was
2: the that was the from, from pundits at least even from republican side and democratic side um you know she she gave a smooth speech she hit the high point she needed to make and, and most importantly she didn't let a gaffe or or some awkwardness or some misstep overwhelm or, or overwhelm the moment and squander the opportunity she had to rebut president trump
3: I think that for anybody who covered the race or lived in Georgia for the last uh, two to 10 years, none of this was really new from (laughs) Stacey Abrams. but the fact that National Democrats had a single black woman delivering their national response to the president of the United States is new. And so I think simply her being the messenger was the message. And she is also very, very high on National Democrats' list uh, to run against David Perdue in 2020. They would really like to get her to get into that fight. It would uh, solve a lot of problems for them. Uh, they not think she would be a really strong contender. Um, and for her, I had not thought it was a possibility. Assuming she would run for governor again um, until I saw her last night. And it's sort of, she's got this window. Uh, it's your time doesn't always come around again. So I don't, I'm not really sure. I think it certainly catapulted her uh, back into the national spotlight when some of the other yeah. 2018 candidates are really receding.
1: If you don't mind, I want to park that part of the conversation for just a couple minutes because we do have to have it. What did last night suggest to us about her future? But let's listen first to a little of what she had to say, Um, she was not hesitant in going after President Trump in terms of the shutdown. Here's how she described it.
0: Making livelihoods of our federal workers a pawn for political games is a disgrace. The shutdown was a stunt engineered by the president of the United States, one that defied every tenet of fairness and abandoned not just our people, but our values. For seven years, I led the Democratic Party in the Georgia House of Representatives. I didn't always agree with the Republican speaker or governor, but I understood that our constituents didn't care about our political parties, they cared about their lives. So when we had to negotiate criminal justice reform or transportation or foster care improvements, the leaders of our state didn't shut down. We came together and we kept our word.
1: There, Greg, was another moment from last night with a great pivot. Uh, She starts by talking about Trump, uh, she believes, being responsible for the government shutdown and manages to turn it into a discussion about her resume, basically, and that of a general assembly where people do work at cross-party lines.
2: It's also her answer to the calls uh, to the criticism that she's too liberal, that right. she's a socialist, right. and it was. And, and again, to just like Patricia Patricia was saying, to those of us who have lived here for the last two to ten years, um, we've heard her talk about this bipartisanship. But this was now her talking about Georgia-style bipartisanship and consensus on a national uh, national level, and talking about criminal justice overhaul. Uh, transportation initiatives, foster care that, that did get overwhelming majorities, in some case unanimous majorities in the uh, unanimous votes in the Georgia legislature um, that were brokered with her help.
1: What's a little ironic about that, Michael, is that during the campaign, certainly during the primary with Stacey Evans, there was criticism for the willingness that Stacey Abrams showed to cross party lines on some very big issues. Yeah.
4: You know, there's there's always discussion about, you know, where you go in the primary, how far left or right versus where you have to come back to. But uh, but I think. You know, Abrams was was, in my opinion, very consistent throughout the primary and the general in being unapologetically, you know, Democrat with her stances and her positions around things, and and at the same time, a, a willingness, not only a willingness, uh, a willingness and an expertise. To to go across the aisle and work for all Georgians to get things done. What I think she did last night was just basically elevate that and, and show the country how how she potentially could do the same thing at a at a higher level. And you know the the key thing that when she said there was the dis, the shutdown was a disgrace. And even though they have disagreements at at the state level, which she's dealt with, you know, they found a way to to make things work. So I I was very happy to hear that part of it. And I think was very key was showing what she's done on on a state level could potentially be done at a national level. Patricia?
3: Well, I think what's so interesting about her and her uh, being selected is that, to me, her oratory is really not even her strongest suit as a candidate. I mean, she is probably the best organizer that we've seen in the state among Democrats in a generation. She's just unbelievably talented at that and to michael's point a really uh skilled legislator and deal maker if i can say that so it'll be really interesting to see where she's going um because uh i think even what we saw last night was not maybe not even her strongest student it was still very ably handled
1: let's listen to one more um moment from her speech uh she countered the president uh when he talked about immigration uh she had a very different point of view
0: we know bipartisanship could craft a 21st century immigration plan, but this administration chooses to cage children and tear families apart. Compassionate treatment at the border is not the same as open borders. President Reagan understood this. President Obama understood this. Americans understand this. And the Democrats stand ready to effectively secure our ports and borders. But we must all embrace that from agriculture to health care to entrepreneurship, America is made stronger by the presence of immigrants, not walls.
1: So uh, she counters this uh, notion that Democrats aren't in favor of open borders and, again, talks about why can't we work together across party lines to solve this problem. And it's
2: been, by the way, echoing what Trump said during his State of the the Union, obviously. But also um, the word cage got a lot of uh, sparked a lot of controversy because um, we've heard it before but uh, fact checkers I'm reading right from a fact check said the cages that Abrams mentions are actually chain link fences and the Obama administration used them too. Um, it's it's a it's something that has come up over and over again and then in the reaction to her speech Republicans are just seizing on that that moment. All
1: right, so Patricia, overall, how would you this moves us to the part of the conversation that I know you are interested in having. What does this speech do for Stacey Abrams? political future she has already made it clear she will run again for something it doesn't this speech didn't endear her to republicans but she knew that was not going to happen if you read the twitter on that obviously there are a lot of conservatives who found fault with her uh, even before she started speaking but what does this do for her future
3: Well, I think that it uh, is now an open invitation for her to run for Senate uh, in 2020. And it really is going to come down to what are her priorities and what does she want? Because the Democrats, I think, are essentially willing to clear the field for her to the extent that that's possible from Washington. They'll raise the money. They will support her. They'll send the surrogates. Um, So it's really and I think they're going to want an answer pretty soon. also. So, you know, it'll be you know, she's she's one to watch for sure.
1: You know. Michael, I thought Patricia said something really interesting when she talked about this just a couple of minutes ago. She said the Democrats, meaning the Schumers of uh, Washington, Mm -hmm. would like her in this race. And she said it would solve a lot of problems for them. I get that. The question is, is it really in Stacey Abrams' best interest? David Redoux has managed to have higher approval ratings— than any other, right, much higher than Kemp, higher than, much higher than Trump. People don't connect him, at least right now, to President Trump and the policies of President Trump. It strikes me that what Democrats may be urging her to do is not necessarily in Stacey Abrams' best interest.
4: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a moment of pause uh, as, as I reflect on the on the right way to answer this. Um, you know, the politician
1: in Owens comes out. He's no longer an
4: analyst. <laughs> uh, Stacey Abrams has, has been quite deliberate about how to decide what, what she's going to do, and I think, look, as as a as a party chairman. As a as a staunch Democrat as a as a fan of this, I would love nothing more to see Stacey Abrams get in this race, continue this you know incredible momentum that she's built, uh, and be able to basically barnstorm across this state and and win this Senate seat in 2020. But at the end of the day, you know Stacey Abrams has to make sure that as as politically savvy as she is as well that she makes the right decision for her. And, you know, I, I think what what I'm going to do is support her in whatever decision she decides to go forth.
2: Greg, I thought Such that a was political. <laughs> answer. No, no, no. I thought it was
4: really well said. The pressure is
1: there for yeah. her to run. And Democrats in Georgia would love to see her. There is no question that with Stacey Abrams running for United States Senate, she could grab, pull a lot of weight behind other Democrats who choose to run for race in races in 2020. It could turn Georgia into a truly competitive presidential race, but she's got to win it. She cannot afford to lose another statewide race in looking at her political future. I think this is a horribly difficult decision that she's got to make.
2: It is a tough decision. Um, and, you know, this is way looking into the future, but even if she loses, there could be a White House appointment, there could be other yeah. things. But yeah. but look, you, you got to match the moment. Uh, Jason Carter said that when talking about it. And, um, you know, 2020- uh the 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 field will clear for her we have 4 of the of the main d- democratic contenders for this seat, basically saying or either urging her to run or saying that they're, um, that they're very unlikely to run if she does. Um, and I can't imagine a high profile democratic contender getting in if she does. And 2022 is going to be in a, a whole different ball game. Mm-hmm. We just yeah. talked about waivers and Medicaid right. expansion. Republicans may be able to take that off the table. Who knows? Um, there'll be, uh, Brian Kemp will be an incumbent. There might be a democratic president that he can use to rally, uh, Republicans in a way that he, couldn't last year um so you know you you never know what's going to happen but right now you do know that the field is there for her and um and david purdue many think are isn't he's a different candidate it's going to be a different race he is an incumbent he has lots of strength he has more strength in the suburbs than brian kemp did but that trump tie um democrats see is very vulnerable
4: well go ahead real quick i I was just going to say about about purdue you know, he was an early supporter of Trump, and he's been an ardent supporter of Trump. So the idea that he's just not as as tied as close to him is because the Democrats hadn't really had an opportunity to go That's, after that. I yeah. get that. It's coming regardless whether it's Stacey Abrams or whoever yeah. it is. He, you know, he's going to have to live with the fact that you know, as Trump goes, we're going to do our best to, to make S- him so go the same way. So last
1: word from you on this segment. So as the if the race is engaged, if it's if it's uh, Abrams or somebody else, we're, Democrats will start pounding away at at Purdue and his relationship oh my gosh. with trump and you yes. believe that will drive down his numbers
3: yes well his demeanor is so different from president trump's yeah. but his voting record it, there is no daylight and i think democrats to michael's point have done no work uh hammering that home um there are very few senators who are as close to this president as yep. david purdue um and as enthusiastic about his policies uh, he also uh doesn't get around the state a lot. Yeah. <laughs> he do- we don't see him a lot. Yeah. We don't hear from him a lot. So I think he's there to be defined. The Democrats are going to have the money to do it. So I think it it could easily tighten up uh, as a race more so than it seems today.
1: Okay, I'm going to take the last word yeah. because in the long run, the last word on this, it seems to me, is it's not just about who Abrams is and about who David Perdue is. It's about where are voters in this state? Are do Are we really... Turning blue, or are we uh, just purple enough that Purdue can do almost anything and there are enough Republicans to put him over the top? Is that at least a fair statement?
3: Uh, I thought you were going to say the really important question is, what is Donald Trump up to well, that, in 2020? <laughs> All right, That seemed right. to cast the shadow yeah. over 2018. Okay,
1: okay. fair enough. Uh, we got to get to another break. When we come back, some interesting state news, among other things. We now have a high-level Republican state elected official who wants to do something at Stone Mountain to honor Martin Luther King Jr. We'll talk about that after this break.
0: On the next Fresh Air, environmental photographer James Balog, who's been documenting the places, people, and animals most affected by rising waters, extreme storms, massive wildfires, and air pollution associated with climate change. A new documentary follows him to those places. Join us.
1: Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB, and you can listen live at gpbnews.org
3: touchdown john nelson here from gpb sports reminding you that in georgia the four seasons are not winter spring summer and fall it is football spring football crouton and national signing day on the football fridays in georgia podcast we'll tell you the stories on and off the field subscribe at gpb.org forward
4: slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found
1: Greg Bluestein, your colleague Jim Galloway, had a pretty interesting exclusive uh, that was uh, reported in the pages of the paper today. Chris Carr, the Republican Attorney General of the state, who is certainly no liberal or even moderate Republican, uh, uh, now says that he would favor putting a bell tower, which was a proposal that was made a few years back, on top of Stone Mountain to honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and, of course, is a reference to Let Freedom Ring Mm -hmm. from Stone Mountain and the other places. That's really an interesting development. Yeah, this
2: is from Jim Galloway, and he's been at the forefront of reporting about all these issues. And Chris Carr became the first statewide elected Republican to come out in support of this, which is, in his words, telling a broader tale at what for decades has been considered a Confederate shrine, with, of course, being the biggest Confederate memorial in the nation and also the biggest state-owned park. Uh, biggest state-owned uh yeah it is, it is this biggest state mm-hmm. it's a state-owned site uh, the center of controversy um for years too especially with the debate over, over removing confederate emblems from state-owned sites
1: um michael uh, we have yet to hear response from any other elected officials in the state we certainly haven't heard from the governor but uh clearly galloway i would think by friday show when galloway will be back he will have gathered reaction from others uh h- having the Bass relief or barrel. I don't know how you say that, the big carving of the Confederate uh, 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 leaders with a Martin Luther King bell tower on top.
4: Satisfying? It's symbolic to say the least. Um, I, I don't know if, if, sim, if, if satisfying is the word. I mean, I, I don't. I don't know it it kind of depends on what you're looking for out of this right? I mean I I don't at, at me looking at this I'm not looking at how can I get satisfaction out of it. I think I'd kind of look at this going how do we effectively acknowledge history and put it in its right context about what it is. So anytime you start talking about what's satisfying or what's, you know, what, what's celebratory, huh, okay. um, you know, that, that's where I start to have some, some problems.
1: Good point. Um, Patricia, the big question is do we have enough uh, uh, momentum to make this happen? Bill Stevens, who runs the, the park— uh, for the company that, that is managing uh, the, the whole uh, entity, he proposed this a few years back and the entire Stone Mountain board uh, turned him down, I think with the exception of Michael Thurman, who was on the board, maybe at the same time. So this is far from a done deal, but it's the beginning of an interesting conversation.
3: And there's going to have to be some solution to Stone Mountain, because you can't just take it down. It it would be very difficult to sandblast. But it is so deeply offensive to so many people, um, especially sort of after all the conversations we've had in the last two years. Um, And so I think it's fascinating that Chris Carr is the one who came out with this. Um, And he's an Isaacson guy, um, somebody who is well known to other Republicans, and I think could play a real leadership role. Um, The question is, you know, is that is that an enough um I don't know I don't think I'm really the right person to decide that um there's been a, some really interesting reporting about um African-American groups that scale the top of Stone Mountain as a way to defeat it um as a way to show that we're better than this and what's in front of us and so you know it's uh, it's not mine to decide but I think it's interesting that cars out first on it
1: what, of course, is interesting about this, based on what you're just saying, is I'm I'm a bike rider, and quite often f- am riding around, go out from my house to the down the path and ride around Stone Mountain on a weekend. And of course, as everybody already knows, it is a predominantly African American yes. sp- place, a- and so it is particularly peculiar to look up at the
4: carvings and see who is using that park. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a I, I grew up in North Carolina, but my grandparents, a lot of my family is is from the Atlanta area, so I spent a lot of summers. At Stone Mountain Park, running around on the lawns, mm-hmm. watching the laser show, um, and, and you know, understands getting older, kind of the context um, of of what's, what what's actually being celebrated there. Um, as I got older, obviously that that became more of an issue. But I wanna I wanna note something that that car said really quick, and he says, um, "I'm a big believer in history by addition, not history by subtraction or deletion. I think it's important for us to have the conversation about the facts." All the facts—the good, the bad, ugly—I'm glad
1: you point. I was struck by that right? that quote because too, because that
4: that to me is is really the key of what we're talking about here. You know, the problem with history so much is get whitewashed, and and history is told by the victors. So it's not so much that you had some great generals here. There were a lot of other really fantastic people throughout the story. But, you know, it, it, unfortunately, only certain people, only certain moments get memorialized. And so I was really kind of struck by that statement because, you know, one way to look at it, instead of there's been people talking about scrubbing the face of it, um, how about adding to it? How about telling the complete story, yeah. that it wasn't simply about, you know, these four gentlemen? It was about a lot of other people, too. Um Okay, we're going to watch that unfold. We're really running out of time. But very quickly,
1: uh, Greg, as I mentioned uh, in the headlines of the show, there is a little hitch in getting the ERA amendment passed by the Georgia legislature. Anti-abortion forces down there are saying that if it passes and it becomes an amendment to the Constitution, it opens the door for abortion on demand. And you now have at least one Republican senator uh, taking his name off the uh, measure to uh, pass it.
2: Yeah, and that could be the death knell to any Senate vote on that. Um, you had, I think it was six Republicans, both the women Republicans in the caucus and four men, and one of those men backed out, and I'm, I'm sure that several others might too. And there was a tremendous pushback from conservative commentators. Eric Erickson was encouraging them to send uh, literal pairs of balls, like soccer balls, to all those, uh, to the men who were supportive of that, basically to say, um, this is taking your manhood away, in a way. Yeah.
3: Well, I think, um, at first blush, it seems like a lot of fear-mongering and ridiculousness, um, although Planned Parenthood has used the ERA in some states to bring challenges to abortion laws. Um, and so I think there is some substance behind it, although I think, you know, there's a whole conversation you can have about what it means to have equal rights as a woman. And we don't know that now because we simply don't have them.
1: Um, we're going to continue a conversation about that on our show on Friday and because it's really an important conversation because it's part of this major... Th- um, kind of uh, a new day at the Georgia Capitol where women in the legislature are asserting who they are. They're saying, we want power. We're going to take it where we can. And so I think it's a fascinating addition to that conversation, and we'll continue it on Friday's show. Also, by the way, we were talking about Senate candidates. Teresa Tomlinson will be here on Friday. (laughs) Can't wait to hear how Teresa, who has obviously been talking about and been talked about as a leading candidate for Senate, uh, how she's feeling about where Abrams is at right now. We'll get to that on Friday. In the meantime, Patricia Murphy, uh, Michael Owens, and Greg Blustein, thanks for a really good conversation today, and thank all of you for being with us. We're back again on Friday at 2 o'clock, and then on TV, Friday night at 7. See you on Friday.